The Guardians of the Galaxy might be a fearless band of warriors, but they're also a group of serious weirdos. Arrested development, daddy issues, tragic origin stories, if you can name a serious insecurity or trauma, odds are one of them has it. These are the Guardians' greatest weaknesses. Peter Quill is kidnapped as a child by Yondu and his band of Ravagers right after he watches his mother die. Growing up in the company of space pirates is as thrilling as it is terrifying, ultimately stranding him in a prolonged adolescence. He gives himself the name Star-Lord in order to sound cool. His tastes and interests are static, as his entire cultural education is stuck on the awesome mix his mother left him. He is an eternal child of the 1980s, stranded among aliens who've never heard of Kevin Bacon. While all of this is endearing in its own weird way, less so is his underdeveloped emotional intelligence. Peter is incredibly insecure. He gets into fights with Rocket over who's the best pilot, becomes jealous of Thor, and puts personal satisfaction before the greater good consistently. Who can forget the moment in Avengers Infinity War when he attacks Thanos out of grief for Gamora, giving the tyrant the opening he needs to escape? It's all part of his overall immaturity. Groot is introduced as Rocket's muscle and partner in crime. While Groot turns out to be a sensitive creature, he also seems perfectly happy to do what everyone else is doing, especially if it allows him a relatively easy life. The adult Groot in the first Guardians film is happy to take orders from Rocket. Even amid constant criticism, Groot is a useful teammate when he's motivated, but pretty useless when it comes to everything else. Groot isn't going to come up with plans, chart a new course, or even pay attention. Indeed, when baby Groot is asked to find a particular item for Yondu, he brings back everything imaginable but the item, including a severed human toe. The one time Groot thinks independently is when he sacrifices himself at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy. He might not be a great thinker, planner, or leader, but he loves his adoptive family and will do anything for them. We are Groot. When audiences meet Drax the Destroyer in the first Guardians film, all he wants is to kill Ronan the Accuser. Later, all he wants is to kill Thanos. His focus is sharp, but it also leads to trouble. While his lack of nuance and intense literal thinking is hilarious, Nothing goes over my head. My reflexes are too fast. I would catch it. Drax's one-track mind gets him and the group into trouble on more than one occasion. Indeed, after the Guardian's plan to sell the orb to the Collector goes awry, Drax responds by calling Ronan out and demanding a showdown. He has no plan other than to stab Ronan repeatedly. This, to him, is not an impediment. To Drax's credit, the beatdown he receives from Ronan does teach him to value his team. It doesn't change his approach to battle, however. He's still a stab-first, ask-questions-later kind of guy. Sometimes this is useful, but other times it leads to trouble. He's learning, but he's likely always going to be a hard-headed goofball with too many knives and too little caution. Thanos raised Gamora to be the perfect killing machine. She grows up, steeling herself against the need for affection, striving to become her adopted father's perfect killer. She succeeds, but only at tremendous emotional cost. When Gamora finally escapes Thanos and finds herself with the Guardians, it triggers a long-suppressed need for a real family. While she complains about having to deal with Quill and Rocket's adolescent antics, it's clear that she secretly delights in scolding them. The same is true of Baby Groot and even Drax. She doesn't just want to take care of them, Gamora wants them to behave. The problem is that Gamora puts everything into her strange little family. She goes from totally closed off and selfish to totally open and self-sacrificing. That imbalance kills her, but she wouldn't have it any other way. Thanos does one of the worst things a parent can do to Nebula and Gamora. 
he pits his daughters against each other, forcing them to fight for his approval. Nebula tends to come out the loser in these twisted games, and it scars her for life. When she finally hunts down Gamora on Ego and beats her in a fight, Nebula celebrates like the little sister that she is. That's when she reveals that all she's ever really wanted was a sister. This moment frees her of the need to please Thanos. Now, all she wants to do is kill him. In the aftermath of the snap, Nebula learns how to be a good friend. Instead of killing to please her father, she learns how to play paper football and be a good sport. It's not a happy ending for the blue-skinned cyborg. It is instead her happy beginning. In the beginning of the Guardians films, Yondu captures young Peter Quill on Earth, but decides not to bring the boy to his father, Ego. From Quill's perspective, Yondu kidnaps him, but in fact, the pirate was saving him from a terrible fate, as he discovered what Ego was really doing with his children. When the other Ravagers catch wind of Yondu's apparent human trafficking, they exile him. Instead of trying to find a way to redeem himself or tell Peter the truth, Yondu doubles down on being a scoundrel. Though he can never bring himself to kill Peter when he's betrayed by him, Yondu never tells him that he sees Peter as his own son until it's nearly too late. Being unable to say he's sorry dooms him in the end, even if he manages to redeem himself. Rocket puts up a gruff, wise-cracking exterior as a way of protecting himself from his own trauma and self-loathing. Even when the Guardians accept him, he still actively antagonizes them because of how much he hates himself. It slips out occasionally, like when he gets drunk and yells, I didn't have to be torn apart and put back together over and over and turned into some... some little monster! His need to push everyone away obscures the fact that Rocket is a fierce warrior, a brilliant engineer, an ace pilot, and a loyal friend. Rocket pushes people away because every time he feels love and acceptance, he's reminded of how much he thinks he doesn't deserve it. Groot is the only one he really lets in, and even then, Rocket bosses him around. Mantis first appears as a servant of Ego, Peter Quill's father. She knows that Ego is murdering his children as part of his plan to create one powerful enough to overrun the galaxy with his essence. However, she's too scared of Ego to tell the Guardians right away. Only her burgeoning friendship with Drax moves her to tell them what's really happening. Plainly put, Mantis has no self-esteem and no social skills. In a group where ruthless mockery is the norm, Mantis instantly becomes an easy target. She's happy to absorb it, because the group accepts her, but hopefully she'll soon learn that she doesn't have to stand for such teasing just to enjoy the bonds of friendship. Even before Asgard's destruction, Thor struggled with responsibility and leadership. The events of Avengers Infinity Wars send him spiraling into drunkenness in an effort to block out his trauma and loss. It's an understandable reaction, and ultimately, he redeems himself by naming Valkyrie as the next leader of Asgard. But his underlying problems remain. By the end of Avengers Endgame, Thor has no real long-term goals. He can do anything, but he realizes, even after defeating Thanos, that he doesn't know what he wants to do. That's why he fits in so well with the Guardians. He's a screw-up, trying to figure things out. Just like them. Will he chart a new course alongside them? Hopefully, yes. So long as they keep him away from the beer. Check out one of our newest videos right here! Plus, even more Looper videos about the MCU are coming soon. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the bell so you don't miss a single one. While the MCU films may be about superheroes, there are still lowly, fallible humans writing the scripts, running the cameras, and working behind the scenes to make it all happen. 
Here's an affectionate look at some of the biggest movie mistakes that have weaseled their way into the MCU so far. Black Widow is as impressive a spy and assassin as ever walked the planet, and she's demonstrated those talents on more than one occasion. However, none of them were quite as impressive as when she made her entrance early on in the first Avengers movie. When Black Widow arrives on the screen, she's tied to a chair surrounded by a bunch of baddies who, by their own calculations, are in total control of the situation. Except, of course, they're not. I'm in the middle of an interrogation. This moron is giving me everything. I don't give everything. Everyone got a kick out of the ensuing encounter, with Black Widow calmly flipping around, beating the crap out of the astonished bullies literally with two hands tied behind her back. The only problem? At one point in the struggle, she literally beats back one of the bullies with her hair. In a move that looks like it was probably supposed to be a headbutt to the face, Black Widow's supercharged locks gently brushed her opponent's face, only to send him reeling backward. While this could have been a hint at some odd new superpowers to come, chances are it was just a poorly filmed stunt that slipped into the final cut. Guardians of the Galaxy was a sweet ride, and a nice way for Marvel to expand the MCU into a more galactic mindset. It also was loaded with laughs, many of which trace their way back to Peter Quill's Earth origins. Right in the opening scenes, we see Star-Lord using a cassette player to boogie down with Awesome Mix Volume 1 blasting in his ears. There's no denying that, right along with the Avengers themselves, that mix is among the best things Marvel ever assembled, with the compilation going on to become the second soundtrack ever to sell over a million digital albums. But while everyone was busy toe-tapping to the music and laughing at the comical adventures of Quill and company, a quiet little detail slipped right past our nostalgic eyes. Star-Lord's cassette is a TDK Type 2 CDing 2 tape, a model that didn't come out until 1993. That doesn't make sense. Quill was abducted from Earth by Yondu in 1988, so unless the Ravagers chose to circle back around a few years later to let Quill copy his favorite soundtrack onto a new tape, chances are this mixtape was a genuine mix-up. Of course, regardless of the year it was made, a cassette tape that has been played for 20 years probably wouldn't be delivering the crisp digital quality we heard in the movie anyway. But that's a discussion for another day. Spider-Man had long been a missed character in the MCU, until he finally arrived on the scene when he briefly participated in Captain America Civil War. Alright, I run out of patience. Underoos! Since then, the Crime Stopper from Queens has earned his own solo movies and played an important part in Infinity War. It was the first part of Spider-Man Homecoming, though, in which the folks at Marvel had one of their most obvious face plants to date. It all had to do with a little time jump that left fans scratching their heads in bewilderment. In general, the MCU tends to follow a real-life timeline that occurs at or near the time each movie is released. However, in Homecoming, the movie begins with a flashback to the aftermath of the Battle of New York, which is supposed to take place in 2012. It then claims to jump forward eight years, which would put the rest of the movie in 2020. This throws it off from the rest of the MCU timeline, especially considering the fact that it would put Spidey's first film right smack dab in the middle of the five-year snap gap. While the Webhead sequel does get back on track by lining up with the events of the blip, the year for the first film is definitely off-kilter and has even been confirmed by Joe Russo to be a mistake. Oh, the it was eight years, I believe. Yes. It was by controversy. Yes. Yes. Very inc incorrectly. <laughs> eight years. Sometimes it's the little details that matter. Things like continuity between scenes, details on a costume, or filling in background content with meaningful information can often take a decent flick to the next level. Over the years, the MCU has done a fantastic job in this regard, maintaining both continuity and impressive details throughout the complex web of storylines that they've woven. But even the geniuses at Marvel aren't flawless, as was made apparent in a quick little scene from Iron Man 2. 
Toward the beginning of the film, Tony watches a clip of himself on C-SPAN's YouTube channel. The clip is titled Stark Industries CEO Tony Stark on Capitol Hill. The only problem? The Capitol Hill he's on should be spelled C-A-P-I-T-O-L, but the video spells it A-L. It may be common to hire editors for the script, but it looks like Marvel may need to get somebody on board to check on-screen spelling as well. Everyone knows Gamora is awesome, and she has one of the absolute best backstories in the MCU to boot. How many protagonists can claim to be part of the Thanos family and still be one of the good guys? As compelling as Gamora's origin is though, she's been around long enough now for a bit of a wrinkle to develop in her narrative. The issue occurred as a result of the writer's attempts to weave her relationship as Thanos' adopted daughter in with her otherwise busy storyline with the Guardians of the Galaxy. The main issue here concerns her original people. The scene in Guardians of the Galaxy in which the gang is arrested by Nova Corps is full of a boatload of background info as well as some typically edgy humor, largely thanks to Star-Lord. During the scene, a small detail flashes up on the screen for a moment regarding Gamora's origin. It states that she's the last survivor of the Zehuberi people. Of course, anyone who's watched Infinity War will recall that we see Gamora being taken in by the Mad Titan who distracts her as half of her people are annihilated. Half, though? What happened to the rest that would make Gamora the last survivor? While explanations could doubtlessly be cooked up, chances are this one is just an oversight. It's easy to excuse incorrect small details as oversights, but a ton of the Marvel magic takes place in those very details. It's an art that the MCU has mastered with cleverly hidden clues and Easter eggs building up so much anticipation for the arrival of new characters and stories over the years. But even the masters can stumble from time to time. Such is the case with a brief bit of text that flashes up on the screen during Captain America The Winter Soldier. As the camera pans across the Triskelion Shield headquarters, it flashes a quick latitude and longitude graphic on the screen, showing where exactly this impressive building is located. It's the kind of detail that most viewers would ignore, while diehard fans will take screenshots of it in order to go look it up later. Unfortunately, in this case, the diehards won't ever get to know precisely where Shield HQ is located, since the on-screen directions both read as latitude, with one indicating north and the other south. Worst reading ever. In the scene in Captain America The Winter Soldier, when Steve Rogers visits the Smithsonian exhibit about his own life, he approaches a memorial to Bucky Barnes. The scene is overloaded with information, so it's hard to take it all in, but at the bottom of the entry it reads, Bucky Barnes, 1917 to 1944. Set against this, however, is the first line at the top of the memorial, which reads, born in 1916. Okay, so which was it, guys? The best part about this one is that the typo takes place on the same piece of information. Usually, there are a few movies separating bits of contradicting information within the MCU, which seems like a reasonable excuse for when a developing storyline goes awry. This time, though, it appears that someone simply changed their mind about Bucky's birth year in the short span of time it took to write two paragraphs of text, and then never went back to fix the original date. Doctor Strange ends up being a pretty cool guy by the end of his first film, and his appearances in Thor Ragnarok and Avengers Infinity War only add to his aura and appeal. But of course, the Sorcerer Supreme started as a cocky, career-obsessed doctor that acted like he owned the world. The early sequences of the movie portray the future master of the mystic arts as a surgeon at the very top of his game, strutting around the operating room like he owns the place. But is he really a master of his craft? Some have called Strange's surgical skills into question when they notice that right in the opening moments of his solo film, Doctor Strange washes his hands and then puts on his mask. This isn't taking place in the 18th century, but in modern times, when it should be common practice for a surgeon to not touch anything that could break the sterile field after scrubbing, including his own face. The info should be common knowledge, especially to the best surgeon in town. And yet, this accomplished professional takes his sterile hands and touches his face right before surgery. It's a rookie mistake that's hardly the sign of a master of any art form. 
We've already established the excellence of the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, but as we saw with Quill's cassette deck, even films as good as these aren't impervious to errors. In Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, though, the error is a bit more obvious. The second installment of the franchise opens with a little backstory on the relationship of Peter Quill's parents, with the movie showing Ego and Meredith Quill cavorting through the Missouri countryside. As Ego leads Meredith down a slope to show him the alien seedling he's planted, she can be seen fleeting down the slope behind him in fur-capped boots. However, a moment later, she's shown next to the strange glowing plant in sandals. Was the script continuity supervisor homesick that day? After all, going from winter to summer footwear is a pretty noticeable difference. While the change is subtle on screen, it's a mistake that the MCU, with all of its attention to tiny details, can't expect to go unnoticed. Something is amiss at the end of The Avengers, in one of the final scenes of the movie. As the team splits up, we see each Avenger as they go their separate ways, heading off to the next great adventure. One of the scenes shows Steve Rogers dressed down from his Captain America uniform, riding a motorcycle as he ponders all that's taken place. The scene is serene, tranquil, and calm. A bit too calm, actually. After a moment, it becomes glaringly apparent that there's no way Cap is actually riding a real bike that's moving down the road. Many fans point to the fact that his hair doesn't even budge during the scene, as proof that Chris Evans is just sitting still. The truth is, though, if you look closely, the hair actually does move toward the end of the clip, a little flip caused by a light draft. However, when taken into consideration, this only reinforces the fact that if he was actually driving at 50 miles an hour, his hair would be flapping all over the place. Once you notice Steve's strangely motionless hair, it takes a moment of cathartic closure and it turns into a scene that screams green screen. Check out one of our newest videos right here. Plus, even more Looper videos about the Marvel Cinematic Universe are coming soon. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the bell so you don't miss a single one. While the MCU films may be about superheroes, there are still lowly, fallible humans writing the scripts, running the cameras, and working behind the scenes to make it all happen. Here's an affectionate look at some of the biggest movie mistakes that have weaseled their way into the MCU so far. Black Widow is as impressive a spy and assassin as ever walked the planet, and she's demonstrated those talents on more than one occasion. However, none of them were quite as impressive as when she made her entrance early on in the first Avengers movie. When Black Widow arrives on the screen, she's tied to a chair surrounded by a bunch of baddies who, by their own calculations, are in total control of the situation. Except, of course, they're not. I'm in the middle of an interrogation. This moron is giving me everything. I don't give everything. Everyone got a kick out of the ensuing encounter, with Black Widow calmly flipping around, beating the crap out of the astonished bullies literally with two hands tied behind her back. The only problem? At one point in the struggle, she literally beats back one of the bullies with her hair. In a move that looks like it was probably supposed to be a headbutt to the face, Black Widow's supercharged locks gently brushed her opponent's face, only to send him reeling backward. While this could have been a hint at some odd new superpowers to come, chances are it was just a poorly filmed stunt that slipped into the final cut. Guardians of the Galaxy was a sweet ride, and a nice way for Marvel to expand the MCU into a more galactic mindset. It also was loaded with laughs, many of which trace their way back to Peter Quill's Earth origins. Right in the opening scenes, we see Star-Lord using a cassette player to boogie down with Awesome Mix Volume 1 blasting in his ears. There's no denying that, right along with the Avengers themselves, that mix is among the best things Marvel ever assembled, with the compilation going on to become the second soundtrack ever to sell over a million digital albums. But while everyone was busy toe-tapping to the music and laughing at the comical adventures of Quill and company, a quiet little detail slipped right past our nostalgic eyes. Star-Lord's cassette is a TDK Type 2 CD-ing 2 tape, a model that didn't come out until 1993. 
That doesn't make sense. Quill was abducted from Earth by Yondu in 1988, so unless the Ravagers chose to circle back around a few years later to let Quill copy his favorite soundtrack onto a new tape, chances are this mixtape was a genuine mix-up. Of course, regardless of the year it was made, a cassette tape that has been played for 20 years probably wouldn't be delivering the crisp digital quality we heard in the movie anyway, but that's a discussion for another day. Spider-Man had long been a missed character in the MCU, until he finally arrived on the scene when he briefly participated in Captain America's Civil War. Alright, I run out of patience. On to Ruse! Since then, the Crime Stopper from Queens has earned his own solo movies and played an important part in Infinity War. It was the first part of Spider-Man Homecoming, though, in which the folks at Marvel had one of their most obvious face plants to date. It all had to do with a little time jump that left fans scratching their heads in bewilderment. In general, the MCU tends to follow a real-life timeline that occurs at or near the time each movie is released. However, in Homecoming, the movie begins with a flashback to the aftermath of the Battle of New York, which is supposed to take place in 2012. It then claims to jump forward eight years, which would put the rest of the movie in 2020. This throws it off from the rest of the MCU timeline, especially considering the fact that it would put Spidey's first film right smack dab in the middle of the five-year snap gap. While the Webhead sequel does get back on track by lining up with the events of the blip, the year for the first film is definitely off-kilter and has even been confirmed by Joe Russo to be a mistake. Oh, that's, it was eight years, I believe. Oh, yes. It was quite controversial. Yes. Yes. Very inc incorrectly. <laughs> eight years. Sometimes it's the little details that matter. Things like continuity between scenes, details on a costume, or filling in background content with meaningful information can often take a decent flick to the next level. Over the years, the MCU has done a fantastic job in this regard, maintaining both continuity and impressive details throughout the complex web of storylines that they've woven. But even the geniuses at Marvel aren't flawless, as was made apparent in a quick little scene from Iron Man 2. Toward the beginning of the film, Tony watches a clip of himself on C-SPAN's YouTube channel. The clip is titled Stark Industries CEO Tony Stark on Capitol Hill. The only problem? The Capitol Hill he's on should be spelled C-A-P-I-T-O-L, but the video spells it A-L. It may be common to hire editors for the script, but it looks like Marvel may need to get somebody on board to check on-screen spelling as well. Everyone knows Gamora is awesome, and she has one of the absolute best backstories in the MCU to boot. How many protagonists can claim to be part of the Thanos family and still be one of the good guys? As compelling as Gamora's origin is, though, she's been around long enough now for a bit of a wrinkle to develop in her narrative. The issue occurred as a result of the writer's attempts to weave her relationship as Thanos' adopted daughter in with her otherwise busy storyline with the Guardians of the Galaxy. The main issue here concerns her original people. The scene in Guardians of the Galaxy in which the gang is arrested by Nova Corps is full of a boatload of background info as well as some typically edgy humor, largely thanks to Star-Lord. During the scene, a small detail flashes up on the screen for a moment regarding Gamora's origin. It states that she's the last survivor of the Zehuberi people. Of course, anyone who's watched Infinity War will recall that we see Gamora being taken in by the Mad Titan who distracts her as half of her people are annihilated. Half, though? What happened to the rest that would make Gamora the last survivor? While explanations could doubtlessly be cooked up, chances are this one is just an oversight. It's easy to excuse incorrect small details as oversights, but a ton of the Marvel magic takes place in those very details. It's an art that the MCU has mastered with cleverly hidden clues and Easter eggs building up so much anticipation for the arrival of new characters and stories over the years. But even the masters can stumble from time to time. Such is the case with a brief bit of text that flashes up on the screen during Captain America The Winter Soldier. 
As the camera pans across the Triskelion Shield headquarters, it flashes a quick latitude and longitude graphic on the screen, showing where exactly this impressive building is located. It's the kind of detail that most viewers would ignore, while diehard fans will take screenshots of it in order to go look it up later. Unfortunately, in this case, the diehards won't ever get to know precisely where Shield HQ is located, since the on-screen directions both read as latitude, with one indicating north and the other south. Worst reading ever. In the scene in Captain America the Winter Soldier, when Steve Rogers visits the Smithsonian exhibit about his own life, he approaches a memorial to Bucky Barnes. The scene is overloaded with information, so it's hard to take it all in, but at the bottom of the entry it reads, Bucky Barnes, 1917 to 1944. Set against this, however, is the first line at the top of the memorial, which reads, born in 1916. Okay, so which was it, guys? The best part about this one is that the typo takes place on the same piece of information. Usually, there are a few movies separating bits of contradicting information within the MCU, which seems like a reasonable excuse for when a developing storyline goes awry. This time, though, it appears that someone simply changed their mind about Bucky's birth year in the short span of time it took to write two paragraphs of text, and then never went back to fix the original date. Doctor Strange ends up being a pretty cool guy by the end of his first film, and his appearances in Thor Ragnarok and Avengers Infinity War only add to his aura and appeal. But of course, the Sorcerer Supreme started as a cocky, career-obsessed doctor that acted like he owned the world. The early sequences of the movie portray the future master of the mystic arts as a surgeon at the very top of his game, strutting around the operating room like he owns the place. But is he really a master of his craft? Some have called Strange's surgical skills into question when they notice that right in the opening moments of his solo film, Doctor Strange washes his hands and then puts on his mask. This isn't taking place in the 18th century, but in modern times, when it should be common practice for a surgeon to not touch anything that could break the sterile field after scrubbing, including his own face. The info should be common knowledge, especially to the best surgeon in town. And yet, this accomplished professional takes his sterile hands and touches his face right before surgery. It's a rookie mistake that's hardly the sign of a master of any art form. We've already established the excellence of the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, but as we saw with Quill's cassette deck, even films as good as these aren't impervious to errors. In Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, though, the error is a bit more obvious. The second installment of the franchise opens with a little backstory on the relationship of Peter Quill's parents, with the movie showing Ego and Meredith Quill cavorting through the Missouri countryside. As Ego leads Meredith down a slope to show him the alien seedling he's planted, she can be seen fleeting down the slope behind him in fur-capped boots. However, a moment later, she's shown next to the strange glowing plant in sandals. Was the script continuity supervisor homesick that day? After all, going from winter to summer footwear is a pretty noticeable difference. While the change is subtle on screen, it's a mistake that the MCU, with all of its attention to tiny details, can't expect to go unnoticed. Something is amiss at the end of The Avengers, in one of the final scenes of the movie. As the team splits up, we see each Avenger as they go their separate ways, heading off to the next great adventure. One of the scenes shows Steve Rogers dressed down from his Captain America uniform, riding a motorcycle as he ponders all that's taken place. The scene is serene, tranquil, and calm. A bit too calm, actually. After a moment, it becomes glaringly apparent that there's no way Cap is actually riding a real bike that's moving down the road. Many fans point to the fact that his hair doesn't even budge during the scene, as proof that Chris Evans is just sitting still. The truth is, though, if you look closely, the hair actually does move toward the end of the clip, a little flip caused by a light draft. However, when taken into consideration, this only reinforces the fact that if he was actually driving at 50 miles an hour, his hair would be flapping all over the place. Once you notice Steve's strangely motionless hair, it takes a moment of cathartic closure and it turns into a scene that screams green screen. Check out one of our newest videos right here. Plus, even more Looper videos about the Marvel Cinematic Universe are coming soon. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the bell so you don't miss a single one.
What's going on guys? Welcome to Everything Always. My name's Michael Roman. Now it's not new news at this point that one of the last huge public steps Marvel Studios took right before everything got delayed earlier this year was appointing the original Spider-Man trilogy director and Sam Raimi to pick up the directorial reins on the upcoming Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness and now has been widely reported they're reworking the entire script meaning this delay at least for Doctor Strange 2 might have been a good thing had they started production which was originally slated for this month they may have had to rush now that ties directly into a specific actor none other than Bruce Campbell who has a history of cameoing in his friend Raimi's movies when asked recently in an interview about a possible appearance in Doctor Strange 2 well like I said his answer ties into those delays specifically we're gonna break down where this came from where the interview took place what they asked him and exactly what Bruce Campbell said about the possibility of his involvement with the upcoming Doctor Strange 2 project but first if you could grab the subscribe button we're giving away two PlayStation 4 Pros, as well as a whole slew of other Marvel-related stuff, including this insane one-fourth scale XM Studios Beta Ray Bill. If you want to be entered to win, all you have to do, hit the subscribe button, then hit the notification bell, leave a like and a comment on this video, and if you want, stick around at the end of the video, we'll get into all the giveaway stuff again there. So this most recent interview in which Bruce Campbell was asked directly about Doctor Strange 2 was actually published just yesterday in Diabolique magazine when speaking to Bruce Campbell about his upcoming brand new book, The Cool Side of My Pillow. And after some of the normal niceties were out of the way and pretty early in the interview, they had no problem asking this directly, quote, I know you are aware of all of the rumors surrounding potential work in the future. You even mentioned in your book you've had a few offers. Is there a possibility you might show up in Doctor Strange 2 and Mallrats 2. And this is what Bruce Campbell had to say, quote, the Kevin Smith thing could happen if it all winds up together, but we haven't had serious conversations about it. For Doctor Strange, everyone is at the mercy of what Marvel is going to do in this backlog of movies they're going to do now. So I think it won't be until 2021. Marvel has to figure this all out. They have to figure out what movies they're going to do next, what movies they're going to delay, what movies they're going to can, and what movies they're going to advance and speed up the marketplace is ever fluid. Now for me, the best part about this is there's no real news there. We know they delayed a lot of productions for these movies, and as I said in the prologue, probably would have been a problem if they had gone forward with production, which was originally slated for this month, June of 2020. It's still awesome to hear that A, he didn't say no, and B, that he's sort of in the know. He knows he will be involved with the project, but they probably won't be back on set till 2021. Again, no headline there, except for the fact that Bruce Campbell will most likely be involved. Now, will he have a major role? That's yet to be seen. As I said, he usually cameos in his friend Raimi's movies, and if you have any wonderings about this, go ahead and watch the original Spider-Man trilogy, a very short but extremely memorable and poignant role. For me, Bruce Campbell is an amazing actor, and while he's well known for things like Burn Notice, I'm just kidding. Somehow in my head, I hope that Bruce Campbell sees this video, hears me say that, and goes, what the f man? Either way, Bruce Campbell's an amazing actor, and I mean, one can dream that we get to see a version of him as Doctor Strange, like the thumbnail implies in the Multiverse of Madness. Guys, let me know all your thoughts down below. I know this was just a quick update, but it is pretty awesome to hear him talk about it, not deny it, and know that he's a little bit in the know. Hopefully we'll see him soon and dream about what role he could possibly have. Guys, let me know all your thoughts down below. What role could Bruce Campbell have more than just a cameo in Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness? Can you see for him? Let me know which character down below and quickly let's get into the giveaway stuff before I let you go. We're still giving away two PlayStation 4 Pros, the next of which is at the 700,000 subscriber mark and a lot of you have asked, of course we'll be giving away PlayStation 5s, we just don't know when they'll actually be released and with limited pre-orders and of course the 
delays in technology shipping this year, we don't want to start giving away those before we actually get them. So for now, it's the PlayStation 4 Pros until the PlayStation 5 comes out. The next of which is at the 700,000 subscriber mark. All you have to do to be entered to win hit the subscribe button, then hit the notification bell, leave a like and a comment on this video, that'll automatically enter you to win all the rest of the prizes like the insane one-fourth scale XM Studios Beta Ray Bill statue that we're giving away. Now, guys, if you're not familiar with collectibles like this, this is in no way an action figure. This stands at almost 30 inches, almost a full three feet tall, and is an immaculately sculpted, very high-end museum-style collectible of all your favorite Marvel characters. We got this one, from the Gem Mint Collectible Store, and he actually did a full review of this exact statue, which I'll leave a link to down in the description. So if you wanna see this more in depth, see how big it is, how awesome it is, you could follow the link over there. Either way, if you want to be entered to win any of the future prizes here at the channel that we choose to give away, including the PlayStations and the Beta Ray Bill, all the same rules will always apply. Hit the subscribe button, then hit the notification bell with notifications turned on, leave a like and a comment on this video, and because it's truly random, the more videos you like and comment on, the better chance you have of winning. All winners will be announced at the end of videos, just like we're doing here, and if you've missed any of those previous winner announcements as we've given away a ton of stuff this year, no worries, all you have to do is scroll back through the channel, look for the winner announcement in the sub count in the title, click on that video and scroll to the end. My name is Michael Roman. This is everything always guys. Thanks so much for checking out the channel and stick around. We'll be posting again real, real soon.